Thank you for listening to episode 16 of The Kindness Rebellion. In this episode, I spoke with Chris Way. Chris is currently getting his PhD in film studies at the University of Iowa. The main reason I wanted to talk to Chris today was um, based on his expertise in film and kind of uh, asking him questions about my new relationship with film. Because uh, as of late, I've been really seeing film as a type of Uh, propaganda in a lot of ways where I feel like the messages and ideologies that are being presented to me aren't really what I want to have in my consciousness and uh, Chris was great and uh, pretty much acting as my therapist in this episode as he was able to give me a new perspective on film and how we can use the insights and perspectives that we gain from film in order to make real change in our environment. Uh, This is really valuable for me because you know Part of me was like, I guess I should just stop watching movies. I should stop watching film. But uh, the truth is, is that I actually really like movies and I love film. It's it's a very captivating experience. And and Chris was able to give me some very valuable insights. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. Make sure to like, share, and subscribe. Do whatever it is you do to let me know you like the podcast. Um, and hope you enjoy. Thanks. This is a podcast about rejecting tyranny and oppression by cultivating both systemic and individual change. I believe the only way to create this kind of monumental change is to inspire understanding, love, and kindness. From there, we can work to embody these essential values in our cultural systems and in our individual lives. My hope is that by effectively communicating with anyone and everyone, we can establish a shared vision for humanity and explore new ways of living to build a better world for all of us. I'm your host, Nathan Jones, and this is The Kindness Rebellion. All hey, right. Chris. Thank you so hey. much for coming on to the Kindness Rebellion, man. I really appreciate you uh, agreeing to come on here. I've, uh, I remember we, a long, long time ago, we decided to uh, talk in a coffee shop about yeah. like the nature of reality and truth and like, uh, you know, religion and all these things. What, what did we call it? It was, um, was it a pasta, pasta coffee. coffee. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that conversation, honestly, just it turned me on to the fact that you're a very open and very smart person. And I just I love I love your opinions and the way that you see the world. Um, so I really appreciate you coming on here, man. It's, it's a appreciate, it's like awesome uh, kind of appreciate that. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad to be here. Awesome. And then I've just I've also loved like your passion for film and the way that you see film. Uh, if you just want to kind of introduce yourself a little bit and uh, talk about kind of your history there and uh, like why you like film, I'd love to start there. Sure. Um, why I like film, I think. I think I've always been drawn to film since I was young, like, um, you know, movies like The Iron Giant or Jurassic Park uh, were very formative for me. I think The Truman Show was probably the first film that really, like, um, opened my eyes to what these stories could do for me as um, as art or as this, like, mind-opening exercise. Mm-hmm. And I was quite young when that came out, um, but I remember that was one of the first that kind of got me thinking differently about what film is or or what my relationship to to it could be mm-hmm. but yeah just to introduce who i am now i mean i'm i'm a phd student at, at university of iowa studying um film studies um but i wasn't always in this in this field i mean i despite loving film from a young age i, I did my undergraduate in in psychology and philosophy worked in the mental health field for a number of years um throughout yeah like, like 20 12 to 2016 17 or so uh, that I was working in like residential treatment centers therapeutic mm-hmm. boarding schools things like that mm-hmm. um 
think I met you shortly after pivoting from that career um, and was kind of in a transition space between doing that and, and applying to grad schools. And then I went to Boston to get a, a master's in um, uh, film and television studies. And now here I am in Iowa. Um, but yeah, just decided throughout my my teaching career and my, my career in mental health that like the thing that I got most excited about, the thing that I was most passionate about was teaching these students how to engage with stories and art and how to appreciate uh, things like film, for example. Um, and yes, friends clued me into this whole world of, well, there's, there's a field for that. There's a thing called yeah. film studies. You should go into it. And I realized this thing that I'd been studying on my own uh, kind of for free, <laughs> Uh, there, there's actually a whole world of people who make that their life of not just filmmakers, but film students, film scholars. Uh, and ever since I learned that that was a viable path, that's that's the path I've been on. It's been really exciting. Yeah. But yeah, just always have loved film. Mostly, you know, when I was younger for narrative reasons for the stories that it tells. But lately I've discovered that maybe narrative isn't even the most important thing. Maybe it's just mm. the act of seeing a motion picture or a body in motion or a face or, you know, these little kind of non-narrative moments can be just as poignant or powerful or, or um, meaningful as, as a quote unquote story in a mm. traditional sense. But uh, regardless of how my philosophy of film shifts over time, I've always, I've always been um, really enraptured by intoxicated by what it is uh, yeah. for sure. That's so cool. And I, honestly, I, I remember I was surprised when you, when you told us like, Hey, I'm getting my master's degree in film studies. And I was like, what? Like, there's a, there's a thing for that. Like you can yeah, go to school yeah. for that. But, and, and then I just kind of realized that, uh, you know, as I've just been going through life, uh, film is becoming more and more present, even just like video and, uh, just like the narrative. And even just like you said, kind of that visual, um, stimulation in general is just becoming more and more a part of our everyday lives. And I think it's really cool that you were able to see not only just like its value in narrative and its value in, you know, pretty much any of your experience with film, but you're just able to learn from it and teach people about it too, which I think is really, really cool. Um, and I think that just really segues me into my first big question is like what do you think film teaches us about like society about like being human um mm. what, what what do we really learn from that what does what does it do for us i think um there's this quote from from roger ebert that always has stood out to me where he says that films are like empathy generating machines mm. which I don't know. I've I've grown more and more ambivalent about like that machine metaphor and whether or not there's this deterministic kind of relationship, right? Yeah. Of of what film generates or what it does, I think varies from person to person, from situation to situation. Definitely. When you bring your body into a movie theater, you're bringing with it all of these uh, past traumas, experiences, biases, mm -hmm. values, right? So it's not it's not a machine. I disagree with Ebert in that sense but i think the broader point that he's gesturing towards i agree with this idea that like film is capable of inviting us into an empathetic relationship with identities or experiences or events that maybe we don't have any immediate experience of right yeah. you can you can see a, a character on film or a person or even a cartoon that represents something that you've never known in real life or that you've never experienced or that you've never been through or that you've never heard someone talk about and I think film has a very um, visceral quality to it where you're not just engaged with it on an intellectual or, or, or um, 
metaphorical or uh, conceptual level, but like on a bodily level, you mm. you feel a film, right? Yeah. Um, I'm borrowing a lot from from um, Vivian Sobchak writes a lot about this in, in an essay called uh, "What My Fingers Knew" and talks mm-hmm. about like feeling a film in her in her fingers in her body. And I, I really think that to answer your question of like what film teaches us, I think it just teaches us to to feel in mm-hmm. ways that maybe we wouldn't, you know, just like any art. Yeah. Um, it, it teaches us to experience and to immerse in uh, things that maybe we wouldn't otherwise encounter. Yeah. And because, like you said, it's so widespread and there's media and film everywhere, it's the most, one of the most maybe pop accessible versions of that mm-hmm. kind of thing, which which sculpture and painting can do as well. But people, yeah. um, people are, are very immersed in film and television and social media videos and things mm-hmm. like that in a way that maybe they're not as immersed in when it comes to sculpture or painting or yeah. et cetera, right? I really like the idea of it being as sort of like an empathetic experience or something that really cultivates empathy. Because I mean, for one thing, you, uh, I like how it really is a very captivating experience. It does have that physical experience to it where you really are becoming, uh, it, it's just capturing, you know, uh, you know, yeah. in psychology, they'll talk about how, you know, a video will create like a visual capture or sorry, like our five senses, we tend to prioritize the, uh, the visual field. And, you know, we, uh, we have that visual capture where we just yeah. really, um, prioritize visual information. So it kind of makes sense that movies are just so, uh, such a good way of helping us, uh, take in information, especially like someone else's point of view. So I really like that you point that out. Um, it, I, it's interesting how that, um, like, I, I think a lot of people may not even watch films and realize that it actually is like giving them this sort of empathetic experience. Um, yeah. and, and I'd kind of love to hear your thoughts on that. Cause I, I think, uh, I think a lot of people would, or I guess the way I see it, I sort of see people watching movies and television and stuff in a way that is mo- meant mostly for distraction, but I do, sure. but there are so many ways that it can actually be like not just educational, but very profound and very important. So I kind of, I'd, I'd love to get kind of like your, uh, your thoughts on that. Cause uh, do you see that as an issue? Do you think there's, there's simply a place for it or uh, do you think it's kind of distracting? That's a good question. Yeah. And I think um, this is part of why I have a fraught or ambivalent relationship to that Roger Ebert quote, because according to his metaphor, it's, you know, a machine that generates empathy implies that it's the machine's going to run as long as the machine's turned on, right? It's going to mm. do X, Y, and Z. And that's not always the case. We are always confronting films. We're renegotiating with them. You can, you can walk out of a very deeply empathetic and uh, progressive and thoughtful and nuanced film and still have reactionary or harsh or cruel ideologies in you, in your heart. Mm, yeah. um, it's, it's not the case that, an an eye-opening film will inevitably open eyes right because we all choose how to respond to things Mm. but you know there is there is something it's like i want to play both sides of that fence right because there on one hand we all have this like um ability to be captivated by or be resistant to um art and stories Mm. and and Mm -hmm. and whatever but on the other hand there is something like uh ineffably um capturing and and uh um sensory about what film mm-hmm. does or what it is so so on, so one answer to your question is like yeah absolutely um people who think a film is just distraction or uh films that think of themselves as just distraction um can be a 
a counterpoint to this maybe lofty or, or um, uh, optimistic or utopian view that I've put forth. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, the counterpoint to that that I think is worth considering is that even people who who think that they don't think about film deeply yeah. or who think that they're not moved by film or who think that film is just a thing that they put on when they're cooking or just mm-hmm. to distract them or uh, while they're folding laundry, they put on a show. I think even those people, whether they acknowledge it or not, are being influenced by um, stories, bodies, spectacle, um, ideology, all the stuff that goes into play in what a film or what a television show is, no matter how shallow the film might be as far as its own aspirations about itself. Yeah. There's inevitably going to be ideology at play. There's going to be representation at play. There's going to be certain characters that are treated empathetically or not empathetically. Mm-hmm. Right. And, yeah. and those like implicit messages are going to seep through um, whether or not we think we're, uh, susceptible to that or looking for that or interested Mm -hmm. in that right yeah that makes sense so i guess that kind of with your proclivity for film and and just how how much of a i would say like a reverence you have for it are there like really any movies that you just don't like like are there movies Mm. that you're just like this shouldn't have existed this should have never been made (laughs) or is it more like you know what i can see everything for what it is and i can value it for what it is oh that's a that's a very good question like (laughs) Um, I have, I have, uh, often bristled at the idea that like, oh, such and such movie shouldn't exist or shouldn't have been made. I've heard, mm-hmm. I've heard those arguments usually from a reactionary point of view of like, oh, this movie is too such and such, or it's too sympathetic to so-and-so, or mm-hmm. it's, um, too full of such and such type of content, you know? And, mm-hmm. and when I hear that kind of reactionary, like recoil at a piece of art that, um, is triggering or frustrating or challenging to people. I, I almost always want to invite them like, well, why don't you lean into that discomfort instead of insisting that the source of the discomfort needs to be banished? Why don't you lean into what that discomfort is and maybe find something generative there? The Ooh. counter argument to this or the counterpoint that I also sympathize with is like some film, some, <laughs> some art is poisonous, right? Some yeah. messages are toxic. So, you know, some films are racist. Some films are mm. uh, steeped in ideology that, um, is a, is a really ugly thing to express and the mm-hmm. expression of it doesn't help us in the mm-hmm. audience, right? Yeah. I've watched films that I feel um, that I'm tempted to say like, ah, oh, I wish this didn't exist. I wish people weren't watching this. Yeah. And it's part of why I'm ambivalent or like kind of, kind of playing both sides of this fence too is mm-hmm. that um, I've been working in grad school for the past like four years, five years, and part of my job is helping students confront even though even films that I think are doing like a shitty, ugly thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's worthwhile to become conversant with the ideas of, or, or like or, or to become uh, knowledgeable, knowledgeable of and um, analytical of and critical of media in a way that's nuanced and robust right so sometimes those ugly terrible films can be a good uh learning experience for people who are figuring out what ideology even means or what it Mm -hmm. looks like you can look at something that's clearly i don't know propaganda or uh, Mm -hmm. like you know one of the most famous films like like birth of a nation right is is famously Mm -hmm. very very racist um kind of glorification of the clan Mm -hmm. to the extent that 
it was even used as a, a recruiting video for clan you know revival meetings and stuff decades after it was made and so i think we can we can look back on that film in historical context and say like oh yeah that's an awful thing i kind of wish it hadn't been made mm-hmm. but but a hundred years later we it it has been made like it, we can't yeah. we can't have we can't go to a world in which it hasn't been made. So maybe the most fruitful thing is instead of wringing our hands about it having been made is to become really good at recognizing what it's doing and how that works, because there are more subtle versions of the same film being made every year. Right. There yeah. are um, there are films that are obviously toxic, but then maybe the more pernicious thing is the films that are not so obviously toxic mm-hmm. that are saying something poisonous in a way that's that feels nice mm-hmm. or that Ooh. seems acceptable. If we say everything on this end of this side of a boundary shouldn't be made and everything on that side of a boundary should be made, then we're risking we're we're becoming comfortable, I think, with like um well, everything that's on the good side of that boundary I've made yeah. is therefore unimpeachable and fine, and mm-hmm. I can uh, consume it uncritically. And I think that's a mistake, right? Yeah, um, I like that. I like. I specifically like that you you ha- you hold this idea of just like um, needing to. It's sort of like a bit of emotional intelligence that you have to have when you're when you're being confronted with these films, right? It's not yeah. a matter of saying like that is bad and we have to stop this. Blah blah blah. It's more of or make sure it never existed. Like even though you said like it can't <laughs> even be done, it's already existed. Um, I I like the idea that it's more about understanding our reaction and our um, interpretation of those in order to learn and grow from it. Because it was kind of like you said, um, if even if we uh, maybe hadn't had the birth of a nation, that's what it was called, right? The birth of a nation. Even if we never had that, something else like it would have been made because those ideas and those um, those ideologies, those beliefs, those toxic beliefs were still present. And then it was just yeah. showing itself through film and yeah. uh, trying to get rid of the film is like getting rid of the the symptom, not the cause. And, and I think like if we, uh, if we didn't, um, if we didn't actually watch that and get uh, just the gut reaction, like this is wrong, then we wouldn't yeah. have been able to make anything counter to it. Or we couldn't have even risen to the point where that stuff shouldn't, we realized that that stuff should no longer be made. Um, yeah. And then yeah. specifically you pointing out like the, the pernicious, as you said, I, I like that word, um, <laughs> the, the pernicious films that really, uh, that kind of make it seem like it's okay. They sort of put a twist on it that make you feel like, oh, well, yeah, this is okay. This is acceptable. Because uh, that, that was actually going to be my next question is just how we handle those kinds of movies with just outdated ideas like racism, sexism, um, things like that. Because, you know, a lot of times I'll be watching some maybe like old comedy or something like that. And it just has like real homophobic or real sexist stuff in it. And I'm yeah. all, and I'm just like, I don't want to watch this movie anymore. It's a waste of time. And so like, sure. do you think it's still valuable to continue watching those movies? And and maybe is it even valuable to um, even keep them around or rewatch them? Or is it more like, this is what it is. I'm going to move on from it. That's a good question too. I think um, I'm I'm struggling with the with the binariness of that choice you've offered me. Of yeah, like, yeah. are we watching or are we not watching? I think people watch <laughs> a variety of stuff for a variety of reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Like like you said in the the first question you asked, like you know, people um, thinking of film as something to edify or enlighten them versus thinking of film as a distraction versus any no- other number of reasons to watch mm-hmm. a film. Um, so the 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 old, I don't know, 90s, 2000s comedies that we 
return to as a sort of comfort food, you know, mm-hmm. carry with them all these um, uh, historical signifiers of what the discourse was like and what the culture was like at the time mm-hmm. that are now cringeworthy. Sure, uh, one response could be to just stop watching them. Another response could be to lean into that discomfort, as I said earlier, and, mm. and analyze and think through, like, uh, what is it about the culture that um, is being expressed here that I can now see more clearly than maybe I did 20 years ago? Yeah. Um, another response could be, I don't know, to just keep watching them. Uh, uncritically i'm sure yeah. that's what a lot of people do is just to say like well that's that was a different time and i'm just gonna enjoy it anyway right yeah um and i think somewhere in between all three of those kind of responses it just we're, we all fall somewhere on that spectrum depending on the film depending on mm-hmm. our relationship to it yeah. i don't know if i don't know if i'm comfortable telling your audience to feel guilty for like indulging in some of those pleasures <laughs> yeah but i do think it's worth being uh, to use, uh, there's this there's this feminist uh, culture critic called Anita Sarkeesian, and and she uses this phrase: uh, "Be critical of the media that you love." And I really like mm. that way of putting it because, like, the critical the 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 critique and the love can both occupy the same yeah. sentence, the same person, the same heart. Like, we can we can still love a thing and be willing to have some critical distance between us and and the parts of the thing that are that are uh um harmful yeah i think like um to go back to your to your earlier question of like film may, films that maybe shouldn't have been made or whatever like mm-hmm. a, a metaphor that keeps coming to my head is to think of films like people like <laughs> it's it's less fruitful to wonder whether a person should or shouldn't exist. And it's more <laughs> fruitful usually to just examine what is the impact of this person in the world or in my mm. life or in the relationships around them or in the communities around them. Obviously, depending on how powerful the person is, we expand that scope on like how we think about uh, our moral feelings or obligations about that person. Right. Yeah. So if a person is, a senator or a king or a president, then we, uh, when we think about our feelings about them, we think about what their impact is on a very global scale. Yeah. When the person is just like a brother or an uncle or a sister or a mother, then we usually think in smaller scale of like, what is their impact in my life? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, very rarely do I find it fruitful to think like, uh, to, to hypothesize about what the world is like without that, king or senator or mother or brother or whoever like because we don't live in that world without them what we do live in is a world that's been impacted by the relationships the the uh, power structures the communities that exist right Mm -hmm. and i think the same thing is true of art and film so there's films that have had a big impact on the culture that have maybe been toxic in certain ways and Mm -hmm. instead of trying to cancel them or redeem them or embrace them or reject them maybe uh, my way of rejecting that binary is just to say whether you watch it or rewatch it or not can we be thoughtful about what these films or shows have done in the world or in at least our lives and in our hearts right oh that's awesome i love that and by the thank you so much for kind of like calling out that binary because i do see now especially how both can exist i love i love that uh uh, be critical of the movies you love who was it that said that again 
Anita Sarkeesian. Anita, yeah. Anita Sarkeesian. That I yeah. love that so much because I think that's some that's sort of a philosophy I'm really trying to embrace in like all aspects of my life is just trying to get rid of the binary or the divide of like good and bad. It's it's really just it's all relative and understanding how it is impacting your own life and how it's impacting your own perceptions and things like that. And honestly, this is so valuable for me to to hear you talk about this and how and how film can really do that for us because um, and then I also just wanted to point out like. I, I think it's also really important that you kind of specified that trying to say, you know, or trying to develop these binaries of like, this film is bad, this film is good, then, um, <laughs> and creating that sort of censorship and that sort of like propaganda sphere right there is just, it's, it's going to be dangerous in the long run. And it's more important if we have um, a sense of self and, and like an emotional intelligence to be able to interact with those things, understand what we can value from it, understand what we can be critical of for it, and then move forward. And, um, and then the last thing, I just, I specifically love how you uh, relate that to people. Because, you know, that's a really good point. I think we, we a lot of people are quick to try and say like, oh, you know, this person, Donald Trump should not exist. And it's like, but he does exist. And he has made a huge impact. And we have to admit it. We have to understand that impact. We have to work through that impact. It's not as simple as just banning him from Twitter and then everything's all better kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So I, I actually really, really like that. That's super valuable. Um, and I guess I, it was just going to kind of bring me to... Um, this this point of like what so then what do we do with film when we move forward from it when we do experience mm -hmm. something and we want to actually take those experiences into our lives because I think one thing that I've been struggling with personally is like when I'm watching a movie or when I'm watching a tv show I kind of see it as fundamentally a type of propaganda I I, I see it fundamentally as as like for one thing, I know it's a narrative. I know that it is a subjective point of view that I'm trying sure. to incorporate. Um, and then sometimes I'm just like, yeah, but it, it's like it's propaganda. And if I and like seeing what it's trying to like force into my my mindset or into my psyche, sometimes I'm just like, maybe maybe I don't want to watch movies. Maybe I don't want to watch TV. It's it's I think it's a very unpopular opinion for one thing. <laughs> but um, I, I'm curious, like what what we what I could do instead, because I mean, the, the truth is, is I actually do love movies, you know, I love TV. And I think there are obviously a lot of people do. And so what what are we do? What can we do to uh, incorporate those and then move forward from it? I appreciate that. And and uh, maybe surprisingly, as a, as a film scholar, maybe this is surprising, I, I sympathize deeply with mm, that yeah. ambivalence and that feeling of like, ah, maybe like a lot of my colleagues, uh, sometimes we have this like reductive joke uh, in film studies circles of like, movies are bad, actually. <laughs> like, <laughs> just look at each other after, you know, talking about what we're studying or what we're researching. Like, yeah, I think films are, are bad. Um <laughs> Just in general, and obviously sometimes we we go on the op opposite end of that. You know, after watching a really moving or thoughtful or or, mm -hmm. or um, uh, incredible film, we 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 look at each other with a sigh of relief of like, oh yeah, oh yeah, we, I'm glad this thing that we've all decided to study is like actually good. But like th that's we're joking about the binary because it's it's obviously more complicated than that. But yeah. I, I relate to this feeling that you're you're expressing of like watching a lot of especially mainstream narrative film. Um, people who are um, thoughtful of like political struggle, class struggle, um, power structures, ideology will often notice as you've noticed that mm -hmm. like, man, a lot of this is, a lot of this is just propaganda. A lot yeah. of this is just <laughs> trying to get us to accept the status quo of, of a capitalist, like mm -hmm. uh, militarized um, 
police state, state of affairs, right? <laughs> that that uh, the happy ending, the mm. um, the the reliance on individualistic versus collectivist storytelling, right? Mm. The um, it's all it's all feeding into these very dominant ideological values mm-hmm. that is once you start seeing the pattern, it's hard to shake this feeling of like, am I just am I just consuming like a, an ounce of Kool-Aid every time I sit yeah. down to watch something. <laughs> um, so I, I appreciate that discomfort. And I think I have two prescriptions um, that might, that, that might be helpful. One, one is, one is, um, you know, the thing that we've been talking about, just, just this act of um, critical engagement, I think mm-hmm. can be, um really generative it can also be very tiring it yeah. can also be very uh, it can be a lot of like labor um intellectual and emotional effort goes into uh you know seeing the latest big blockbuster thing and then having to unpack all the stuff that it was trying to brainwash into and yeah. accepting you know <laughs> like I, I can see how that kind of work um can feel daunting and and de, de- um demoralizing after doing it a lot but uh i do think it's worthwhile work mm-hmm. and i think most people don't um want to completely cut out mainstream media from yeah. their lives and mainstream art and entertainment and so i think the best thing that folks can do who who have a steady diet of um <laughs> mainstream entertainment is to just constantly as constantly as as humanly possible try to do that kind of critical work and try to unpack um, the, the way I explain ideology to my students often is just what is being taken for granted? Mm-hmm. What is being left unsaid? Right. Ooh. And if we do that work of like watching a movie and then wondering what is being assumed as normal in the way that this movie portrays reality or portrays its narrative stakes or portrays its emotional, you know, whatever, um, that can be really worthwhile and generative work, but obviously all the caveats of like how hard that is to do and how yeah. taxing that can be uh, are, are in play. The second prescription, the alternate, an alternate um, possibility that one can do both, but, but um, would be to seek out more uh, radical art. You know, mm, there's, yeah. <laughs> there's a whole world of, of, um, subversive radical non-mainstream non-hollywood um uh film and media and storytelling uh and experimental stuff Mm -hmm. and stuff from the margins that's out there that's just begging to be seen and that unfortunately doesn't have doesn't often have very wide distribution Mm -hmm. um and the more i think that people um seek out that stuff the more film can live up to that aspirational you know ebert quote that we started with Mm -hmm. of of being an empathy generating machine because um if the if the imagination of a film is limited by um the capitalist machine of hollywood then (laughs) now i'm turning ebert's metaphor on on back on ebert he's not here to defend himself uh but i yeah there is something almost insidious about that machine right that machine churning out um i'm borrowing from from uh your your listener should should read some um adorno and and horkheimer um I've written a essay called the culture industry that talks Mm. a lot about this and about like the the way in which uh, culture as this kind of ideological apparatus, um, top-down kind of uh, 
seeps into our collective kind of imagination and mm-hmm. the way that we see the world, right? Yeah. Um, so that's that's all to say that, like, I th- I think where Horkheimer and Adorno are a little bit pessimistic, my optimism is in the cracks in between that the cogs of that machine. I, I think mm-hmm. that there are pieces of radical art out there that are worth finding and um i don't know okay here i'm gonna go even more optimistic but i think even in the most blatantly commercial uh mainstream hollywood art there can be moments of radical subversion Mm. right there can be moments of um deep empathy there can be moments or glimpses of something transcendent um do you have any examples of that? Oh, that's a good, that's um, probably probably hard to pull right out of your hat, but <laughs> I mean, I'm going to use the most basic. <laughs> here's, here's a very basic often talked about example, which is star Wars, right? Yeah. Star Wars owned by the biggest <laughs> company in entertainment. Um, clearly this huge multimedia franchise that exists to serve capital and to make money and to sell toys can often, I think be uh, liberatory and um, powerful and even spiritually moving and like yeah. politically like um, meaningful. Uh, I, I sympathize with and probably agree with most of the arguments against Star Wars from the political um point of view of of like how it's milquetoast or how its metaphors are so basic that um both the left and the right can see themselves in the heroes uh, or can (laughs) tell themselves that they see themselves in the heroes and as much as people on the left like to say like no it was always anti-vietnam it was always you know like episode three was anti-bush episode four was anti-vietnam like there's there's all these arguments we can make in favor of like star Wars has always been trying to be a radical text. Like Mm -hmm. the truth of the matter is that star Wars is very archetypical and relatable to everyone, which is part of why it's so um, popular. And that, and that's the root of maybe the most trenchant critique of it, which is that it's, it's iconography is so steeped in, uh, meaning that it almost becomes meaningless. It becomes this thing that anyone can map onto. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It becomes, it becomes a signifier that points to nothing or anything. Um, so I, all of that is to say, I, I accept and uh, acknowledge those, those counter arguments, but I also think that there are things in star Wars that strike me as like really powerful. And yeah. this is where the subjectivity comes in that we, that again, that we started with, right. Of how, when you bring your body into a movie theater, you're bringing all these subjectivities experiences values biases um traumas whatever uh and so i think it's up to the individual audience member to try to bring what they can to a film Mm. um as much as it's possible to do so and i think i think in some cases you can you can look at a film like let's say the last jedi for example and you can see something um you can see you can see things with radical potential in that mm-hmm. story or in the way it's presented. I did a video essay uh, a few years ago about the Porgs, those little like puffin creatures. Yeah. <laughs> um, and my argument was basically like, this is why the Porgs matter. The Porgs are this like latest instantiation of the Star Wars franchise, always being interested in ecosystems and creatures in mm-hmm. the way in which like all these non-human animals and entities sentient or non-sentient are all connected and the fight against you know these evil space fascists involves 
um, everybody, including, including little birds. puffin birds, yeah. including, uh, uh, you know, walking carpet bear man, <laughs> including human characters, including non-human characters, including like, like everything is that's, that's, that's my, you know, reading of the, uh, ecology of Star Wars as this mm-hmm. like, uh, expression of radical solidarity with non-human entities. But to what extent is that an intentional main theme or through line? I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's on someone's mind in the, in the creature design department or on the script level. Maybe George Lucas has some of these thoughts swimming around as I said, but I don't want to give them too much credit if, if, if it's not warranted. And I don't know if it matters uh, mm-hmm. to what extent that's intentional. If I see it there, then it's there, right? Yeah. If it's, something that I take from the film that I find meaningful, then I think that's enough. I think sometimes people who, I think sometimes people are sheepish about like trying to find that meaning and they want to say like, well, I don't know if that was intentional. I might just be making shit up. Mm -hmm. But like, no, we're always making shit up, but we're making shit up about (laughs) everything, about the relationships that we have, about the institutions that we interact with, about the art that we interact with. We're always interpreting. We're always Mm -hmm. responding it's an act of creation, I think, yeah. to watch a film. Yeah. So it's it does you don't have to just passively say, I will accept the version of this that I think was intended. We can we can actively look at a film and find and make meaning in it, That's I think. Awesome. And and it can immobilize you for something to make real active change in your actual environment, especially if it does, you know, yeah. I, I love that because if, if it really does tell you like, oh yeah, I, I caught I got this from the movie that, you know, I'm everything's connected and that we all have to be kind of interdependent in order to build like real meaningful change and then you actually do something with that that's that is important and that that makes it so it doesn't fucking matter whether they intended to put it that way because it's actually building something more beautiful and more meaningful and i really like that and i was also thinking while you're like kind of what you were saying where you know how that that capitalist culture machine is is kind of maybe it's driving the whole creation of these projects and these films and this art but regardless of that there are human beings with real spirituality with real emotion with real uh feelings and with real expression that is embedded all throughout that entire process so where you say you know you're maybe you're worried about being an optimist about seeing those cracks in that capitalist culture machine and that (laughs) empathetic machine um you know i think i think uh, i think it's accurate i think it's very accurate because our our humanity and our ideas and uh and the connection that we all share is going to be embedded within that no matter what and and it's kind of like you said with that with those archetypes from from star wars there's a reason that it was so powerful it's because it like resonates with with so many people all across the globe you know it's it's accounting the hero's journey which you know is just this this really fundamental experience of being human and and uh i really appreciate that you laid that out because i think i think that gives me something to value though it really gives me something to say okay i can take this in understand my my own interactions and my own reactions to this film or to this art and then understand what I want to do with it, what meaning I want to make from it, what do I want to move forward with it? Um, because I, I really was kind of paralyzed by this idea that like, oh, I'm just like sticking a tube in my mouth and just sitting there consuming and that's all it is. But <laughs> uh, I mean, it sounds like that was just my perception of it. That's just what I was deciding to take away from the film. And and I, I really appreciate that you laid out that it obviously doesn't have to be like that. Yeah, I think we can. I think... I mean, this this all relates to that first question that you asked. But yeah, I think I think people have power, more power than maybe they give themselves credit for. Yeah. To um, 
to make meaning out of the universe and out of the art that they encounter uh, mm -hmm. in a way that's generative to them. And that's, you know, I keep, I keep, I keep talking out of both sides or, 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 you know, hopping, hopping the fence in, in all my responses to you. That's but needed, like, man, I appreciate you calling out <laughs> the binary because it's, it's important. The nuances where everything exists. Yeah. It's, it's, it's tough. Cause on one hand, everything I just said, you know, everything you just said about rejecting that, that, uh, deterministic kind of flow of the tube of, 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 of the, the art pushing meaning into, into your mind without, without you having any say, um, like yes, you do have power. The other, the other side of that, the other side of the fence is that um, we, we, there is a danger of overestimating the the amount of mm -hmm. power that you have, yeah. right, or or the amount of ability that you have to decode things that might be super uh, deeply embedded, right, mm -hmm. um, or entrenched. Again, going back to that, you know, intro definition of ideology that I use for my students of like what is being taken for granted, mm -hmm. right, and sometimes that's not on screen that's like in us right yeah. maybe maybe the film's trying to push us out of our ideological bubble and we can't because we don't see it we don't even know that we have these assumptions mm -hmm. in our hearts right of like how the world should be or what gender should be or what heroism should look like or what a narrative arc should look like or you know to use your example of star wars like what a what a hero's journey looks like that, yeah that archetype has ideological ramifications and if we bring those ramifications with us and then we don't know that they're inside of us um even a film that's trying to critique them can fall flat on like we we may not have the power to to be moved by it if we if we aren't introspective enough to see um the biases that play in, in our, in our own minds and in our own interactions yeah. with the world and with power structures around us. I think where the real value comes from that though, is like, is this discussing films and discussing like sure. other people's reactions and interactions with it. Cause that's where it becomes most fun. You know, I, I love when I'll watch a movie and I just walk out of it and I'm like, I don't even know what to think about that. <laughs> that kind of fucked with me. I don't even know what to think. And then I talk with somebody about it. And then I'm like, oh, this was your reaction to it. I didn't even think about that. Maybe I need to rewatch it with this mindset or I need to kind of open yeah. up in this way. It's like, oh, really? That part kind of hit me this way. And um, and I think that's where we can kind of uh, coalesce that nuance where, you know, you really can kind of build true meaning from it. And that's where we build connection and, and a real value from these, because um, that I think that's when it is most valuable is when we can actually allow ourselves to either see or just openly express how it affected us, how we reacted to it, and then yeah. also being able to understand how it can op uh, react, how other people can react to it. Because um, that, I mean, that's always just interesting. And that's always what's the fun part about it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I am, you're preaching to the choir on that <laughs> one. I'm fully, fully on board with that model of um, the encounter with the, with the art can only go so far yeah. uh, on this introspective level. We, we have to collide with other people mm. um, and with their experiences for, for that spark to really set off. I think, I think you're absolutely right. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. I find that, I find that really valuable. Um, and it kind of just that whole discussion on star Wars kind of brings me to my, my next question where I wanted to see if you feel like film does, or even should have like a vision for humanity. Like, cause I feel like a lot mm. of futuristic films specifically, they try to portray like, this is what, you know, um, life is going to be like, right. I can't remember what, um, movie, I can't remember what movie I was watching, but it was like uh, about some guy coming from the future back to see is like past self or whatever um it was like a new one I, it has um ryan reynolds in it i'm blanking mm. on it 
anyways and it yeah. was it was really funny because there was one section there was one part where uh you know he's it's like oh what's the future like and it's like oh well we don't have money and he's like you don't have money he's like no of course we have money and i, I just remember <laughs> thinking i was like why can't the future not have money like you right. know like that's something that's like in you know in my peripheral right now because i volunteer for the bunnyless society but then i really it just kind of started me on this whole train of thought of like like what what is this film trying to portray to us like whenever we are portraying the future we're trying to tell people this is what the future will look like and um and i wanted to see if you think if it you know if it even does that or even if it should hmm yeah i um i'm hesitant to prescribe what film should or shouldn't do but one thing that i think film uh films about the future you know the, to to narrow the scope of this question to, to to the kinds of genres that that seem most relevant, right? These mm-hmm. sci-fi or you know, these speculative fiction yeah. films that imagine another world. Um, I think something that they do is they comment on the present by ostensibly mm-hmm. giving us a vision of a future, right? Mm. The the on the surface level of most futuristic sci-fi is like we're imagine we're we're giving you an imaginative vision of what our society could be like in 200 or 2000 years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but under that surface is almost always um, like deeply seated critiques of, or observations on what the sci-fi author is noticing in our society today. Right. Mm. And which is why when you watch like, I'm, I'm blanking on like a good example of this, but when you watch sci-fi films from say like the 1970s or 1990s or whatever that pretend to be about the 26th century or the 32nd century or whatever, mm-hmm. they're they're usually in retrospect, you know, looking back on it in the 2020s, they're usually about the 70s or about the 90s. Like you yeah. can tell looking back on these films, like oh oh, it was the end of the 90s and like such and such was on everyone's mind, and yeah. that's why this film is so obsessed with such and such and. You know, there's exceptions to that. There are some films that like seem to be prophetic or seem to be speaking to concerns that no one was really interested in until mm-hmm. 40 years later or whatever. But I think for the most part, films are always talking about the present, mm-hmm. even when they pretend to be talking about the past or the future. Um, they Films are made from a historical and political context, and they speak to the concerns of um, the artists that live in that context, right? And so yeah. even if they they are set in some kind of future, I think typically they what they reflect even more than the future, whatever that means, is is uh, what are we worried about right mm-hmm. now, <laughs> or what are we concerned okay. with right now, right? Um, that makes a know, lot of sense. I, I don't know if that answers. Maybe that avoids no, answering your no, question. No, I think, it, I think but... it really does answer because, like, you know, I, I could because the only reason I really ask that is it, it sort of ties in with this idea of like film being a type of propaganda, right? And I'm, you know, uh, sure. I'm trying to sort of grapple with this idea of like, oh, should I embrace it or should I reject it as as propaganda? And so I'm like, oh, well, if we're going to embrace it as propaganda, maybe we should use it to build like ideas for utopian visions, right? If we could sure. just be like, hey, let's let's make like let's mainstream and make it like. Like really uh, digestible and uh, you know enticing to portray a future that is just going to be like really really beautiful for everyone and sort of yeah. lean into that propaganda. And so the reason I really asked that was to just be like, dude, like it's like I wonder if we should be moving in that direction, kind of thing. But I sure. like how I think you really did truly answer the question because you know we could do that, but really all it's going to be doing is saying like, here's the problems that we're witnessing now. 
and this is what we want the future to look like if we solve them. And um, yeah. and I, is, is that essentially what you're getting at? Yeah, I think I think that's a good way of of putting it together. That yeah, if let's okay, let's let's say let's jump into a hypothetical. Yeah. Let's say that you and I make a movie today that speaks to what we collectively envision as like a perfect society a hundred years from now, right? Mm-hmm. People who watch that movie five hundred years from now maybe we'll have a different perspective on like what we think we're saying right um maybe if we make it today and we say okay it's it's 2022 but we're making a movie about what you know 21 22 should look like in our view Mm -hmm. future historians and audiences are going to look back at that and be like oh yeah this is the kind of stuff that was on people's minds in 2022 these were the Mm -hmm. problems that they thought um were crucial and these are the and look at all the problems that they didn't clearly didn't think were crucial right <laughs> like that's the, the blind spots in retrospect yeah. are going to be glaring right what like yeah. the example that you used of that sci-fi that couldn't fathom a, a future without money which is silly because star trek has been imagining a future without money yeah, that's for right decades now right <laughs> but like for for that film that you cited to to not even know how to think about a a, a future without money without making it into a joke um is indicative of a blind spot that that you and I can see it con- contemporaneously, but but you know maybe a lot of audiences will just take at face value, mm-hmm. and certainly I'd imagine audiences from the future will look back on it and be like, yeah, why why did this comedy take for granted that that would be an impossibility? I would hope mm-hmm. there's my op- there's the optimist in me. I would yeah. hope that future audiences could look back on that and see it as an absurd omission or assumption. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean. Is that to say that we shouldn't or that we should like, no, like, uh, I think it's great to make films about, um, utopian ideas that you, that, that society could benefit from mm-hmm. normalizing and contemplating together. Right. Yeah. I think it's great for art to push the, um, what's that phrase? The Overton window. Is that what it's called? I don't know. Like the, 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 um, public consciousness is like, the the public like their boundaries ex- acceptance the boundaries mm-hmm. of like what is acceptable or what what is um uh, something that we can like fathom taboo. right mm-hmm. yeah oh I see, I see I think it's great to push that window uh, mm-hmm. and to and to try to make art that um that envisions uh that gives people something to to look toward right yeah. what's that old that old like uh, activist maxim of of you can't be what you can't see right mm. um which is why it, it, the the maxim that we use a lot in, in media studies is representation matters and you see that 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 phrase is has seeped into the mainstream discourse about film right representation mm. matters repre- and what people are saying when they say that is that um we want to see ourselves we want to yeah. see our present and our future in the films that purport to be telling us our stories yeah um and so i think i think the real answer to your question is yes. I, I do think that um, that's the shorter version of my answer to your question is I do, I do think it would be worthwhile and generative for artists to give us better and more radical visions of the future. But my caveats to that, yes, are to say that like, whenever we try to do that, we're always going to have blind spots. We're always going to be speaking mm-hmm. to what we think is important. Now there's also like another caveat that I haven't mentioned is, is just that, um, um, I think there's value in in dystopia and tragedy as well. Mm. Like the flip side of utopia yeah. is to um, 
Well, let me put it this way. Maybe the 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 drawback of utopian storytelling or world building is that it um, it can lead an audience to imagine that future as inevitable. Yeah, right? this actually- whole like arc of history going towards good mm-hmm. kind of thing. That like when when Dr. King says history arcs towards justice or whatever, he he didn't mean inevitably. Yeah. <laughs> but I think a yeah. lot of like neoliberal like um kind of centrist optimists uh takes on politics make the mistake of assuming that the world just automatically gets better the way that a, a river flows downstream, you mm-hmm. know, which is not the case. Um the the future only gets better if everyone fights for a better future yeah. and so so one of the drawbacks i think of um maybe hyper focusing on uh, op- uh utopian world building is is that we um we yeah. risk implying this is where we will be <laughs> in yeah. a thousand years without uh letting the audience sit in the discomfort of what that space looks like between now and then yeah and what the struggle looks like between now and then yeah right? oh shit dude that is so good i mean I'm, I'm seeing like an overall theme of this conversation that's just sort of like this balance right a sort of a yeah. balance not trying to say like oh it's all good or it's all bad or we should be striving for all good and trying to avoid the bad or anything like that it's just this nat- natural balance because um I, I really felt what you were saying where like i was like oh if, like all we're ever portraying is dystopia like it's just it was all the rage to have all these dystopian like movies and novels sure. and things like that and so i'm like how do we not realize that we're driving ourselves towards that by giving that its energy but mm. I, and and so my my reaction my overcorrection, i think was to say like we should be driving our energy towards utopia and i and i see the value in both based on what you're saying i do i do understand that like trying to say okay yeah we're just gonna pump out a bunch of like hollywood films about utopia and this like beautiful like glorious uh thing is going to somehow inevitably lead us there not quite Mm. and and i specifically love that you pointed out how trying to you know encapsulate the future is going to necessarily have blind spots and those blind spots could create dystopia and so we have to be able to keep those in balance and keep those in check in order to actually get ourselves to the place that we want to go yeah yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. I think I think at the crux of this too is like either the dystopia the dystopian fiction that you're describing that I agree is like very prevalent and probably <laughs> a problem in the way that you've described, right? Um either both that and the 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 utopian um world building projects that we could imagine might be really really great. Um the 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 drawback of both is just this limitation of narrative storytelling in general, mm. which I think like you know, par- part of part of something that I've opened my eyes more and more to in, in studying film in these past few years is just like how I used to think of film primarily as narrative storytelling. Cause that's mm-hmm. the kind of film that's, that's um, most common, most common, most accessible. Um, but the more and more that I've seen, non-narrative kind of experimental films, the more I've opened my eyes to this idea or even just watch narrative films without paying attention to the narrative and like mm-hmm. paying attention to other things. Right. The more I've realized like, yeah, the, 
the problem with narrative is that it 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 ties everything up really tidily mm. in, in like a neat little bow. And whether you're telling a tragedy or a comedy, whether you're telling a dystopian story or a utopian story, inevitably you're going to frame it in, you know, what in, in a, in like a, a package, package experience. Yeah. That has a beginning, a middle and an end. You know, there's rule, quote unquote rules to screenwriting about, mm-hmm. you know, how much the, how long the first act should be, how long the second act should be. And like, there's this kind of like, there's these conventions of like what a story looks like or how it's shaped. And even just the act of telling a story, I think has political limitations and Mm. like um, you're inevitably going to flatten, I think the human experience um, into something that um, doesn't look like the life that you and I or anyone is actually living you, you and i aren't living through a story we're not living mm. through a, a narrative arc with a beginning middle and end with like yeah. a rising action and a climax and a, like we're living through something that's a lot more complex than that it's a lot more non-linear we're jumping between different kind of emotional arcs all the time we're starting and stopping different um relationships and different paradigms and different like uh mind states and we're ebbing and flowing uh, in 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 you know spiritual and psychological and political and economic kind of like everything's swirling around and we're connected to, you know, like, like, like I said earlier with like the porgs and all the animals and Star Wars, like we're always connected to these other systems and these other organisms and these other ecosystems and these other agents in the universe. And there's no way that a two hour narrative film can, um, can capture all that, can really capture that. And the stories are powerful. I, I, I obviously don't deny the importance of telling stories. But I think one thing that, that almost always falls short, um, the, the narrative cinema almost always falls short of is accounting for the complexity of what life is time and space actually feels like yeah. when we live through life. Holy yeah. shit. I'm so glad you brought that up. Cause that's actually something I've, I've I have noticed. Cause like um, not specifically that like our lives aren't narrativized, but that, just I, I remember like watching some movies and watching some films and I'm just like, I feel like this is painting a picture for people that just isn't reality. And most of the time mm-hmm. it's not right. Um, and even if it is like a true story or it's like this, this true experience, you know, you didn't, you didn't have I, th- something I always think of is like, if someone's like sitting there, like car, like curled in a corner, like scared, you know, and if you're actually experiencing that, you're not having dramatic emphasis, like dramatic music rising around you. You're not having, you know, a, like sure. a, something zooming in on your consciousness or anything in real. I feel like when you're actually experiencing a traumatic event or something like that, there's like this stillness and this weird, just like limbo in space that is, is really hard to capture in film. And I am sure it's yeah. been captured before, but I really love that you pointed that out. And I think that was something that was like, like making me sort of feel adverse to film was just being like, this isn't capturing the human experience and fuck it should be for some reason. (laughs) And, uh, but like, I, I think, I think it is important to realize the, like you said, like the value of narratives and, uh, and the value of stories and what it can do for us. It actually makes me think of, um, uh, this thing that, uh, like a, uh, his name, Sadhguru, um, said he, he was like, he was like, don't let books dictate your life. He's like, books are meant to inspire you. And so I'm kind of mm. seeing that with film and narrative in general. It's like, don't let it try to dictate or like, 
like tell you that this is what reality is and this is what the human experience is. It's like this should inspire you to have a feeling, to have a reaction, to have an emotion and then move forward in reality with that. Hmm. So I really like that you pointed that out. That's a good way of putting it, of of resisting the urge to to uh, to narrativize our own lives the way that film is narrativized or the way that books are narrativized. Mm-hmm. Um, I like I like that. I think that's advice. I think that's sort of like I think that's sort of human ego doing that. I think that's why stories and narratives like speak so much to us because that's all ego is. You know, ego is a story of ourselves that we've created. And so when sure. we watch films and movies, we we try to identify with those stories and um, either you know incorporate that into our own sense of self, into our own ego. And uh, and so I I, th- I feel like that's kind of what I'm seeing there. And uh, I, I just love that you pointed that out. Um, one thing that I do want to bring up because you, cause yeah. you brought it up earlier was representation in films. Cause this is, this is actually something that it kind of ties into what we were just talking about where, you know, I, I do agree that representation matters because, um, you know, by not representing people, you know, like people of color or like, you know, people from the LGBTQ community, right. Um, we're, we're, we're marginalizing them and we're silencing them and we're keeping their stories out of film and we're keeping them, their stories out of the mainstream culture. So I see the value of that. I think one thing that I've been critical of, and I, and I'm, I just want to, I, I feel like I might be wrong about it is, um, is trying to just simply represent people sort of in an in, inauthentic way. Um, sure. you know, like maybe, uh, cause I mean, if we sort of, uh, I'm going to say this for fear of treading on, you know, some pretty, uh, pretty, uh, sketchy topics. So let's, you know, okay. let's say that there's like, th- there's this typical experience of being black that I have a bias of, right. Where I may assume that, uh, to be black is to, you know, experience a lot of racial prejudice, maybe even a poverty and things like that. And then I go and watch a film where they don't experience any of that, where it's just like perfect. And it's mostly like a white experience, something that maybe I identify with because I have explicitly had those experiences. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that type of representation is harmful or do you think it's sort of helpful in the same way of like, you know, portraying movies of or film of utopia where we're moving towards that direction? Or is it even like something that those communities even would want to be represented in? Sure. Yeah, that's a good... Um... That's a big debate yeah. <laughs> in film studies and in film criticism these days. And, and I think a lot of cultural critics have been grappling with the very questions you're, you're asking. Uh, um, blanking on the name, Stuart Hall, I think is his name. The, there's a, a, a cultural critic who writes about what he calls um, politics of representation versus representation of politics. Mm. And the distinction he's trying to make is like, on one hand, there's this kind of shallow, like, tokenizing, like, mm. hey, we're putting one of one of you on screen, and like, <laughs> that's the politics. That's the end of the praxis. That's like yeah. all there is is just this kind of like um, presentation of a body, as if that's all the work that there is to be done. Mm-hmm. And then he contrasts that with what he calls um, the the representation of politics, which is which is what if the, what if that act of representation was uh, cognizant of and deeply like confronting uh, actual um, lived experiences and political struggles of that marginalized group that you mm. purport to be serving with mm. your representation, right? So yeah. there's a, there's another scholar as well that I, I, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I can 
you know, later if you remind me, I can send it to you. You can put it in the show notes. But there's another essay I read recently about um, this quote unquote positive representation, right? Mm-hmm. Or positive image. The the idea of um, a lot of critics for a while um, in the 90s, 2000s were, were pretty obsessed with this notion of like positivity and like, oh, we need positive images of such and such group, right? Uh, which is true and good and, and rooted in a desire that, like you said, with your, you know, comparison to the utopian desire of like, we want aspirational things that are hopeful and they give us something to look for. And, and you know, you can't be what you can't see, right? So yeah. we need to see, you know, um, it is meaningful that like Bruce Lee is this like Asian transnational uh, action superstar and that and it is meaningful that Bruce Lee um, combats the kind of demasculinization and desexualization and uh, disempowering of uh, Asian men on screen that mm-hmm. preceded him, right? At least in Western media. So like that means something, surely. Yeah. Um, but the counterpoint to that is that we, we can't, we can't just have positive representation. We can't just have marginalized groups um, content with here's your hero. Here's your uh, queer hero or your black hero or your mm-hmm. Asian hero, your woman hero. Who's like just doing the thing that, that the oppressor does in every other movie, mm. but from the point of view of the oppressed instead or with, <laughs> the, with the body of someone who is oppressed. And yeah. you know, like, what does that actually do? Does that actually confront? So like the counterpoint to that obviously is like, if you lean too hard, you know, this is the main theme I'm sensing of, as you noted earlier of our conversation of like, you can, you can overcompensate either direction, right? If you overcompensate towards positive representation, quote unquote positive, then you run the risk of racistly bending over backwards to try not to be racist. And you create (laughs) this, this new stereotype of like, uh, that, that flattens and, 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 you know, um, and doesn't account for the complexities of an authentic experience of being yeah. in that community. And then if you overcompensate too much the other direction, then you create just, you know, um, oppression porn, mm. uh, you know, just movies, <laughs> yeah. movie after movie of like people being oppressed or of people being poor or, mm-hmm. you know, like people, like if every depiction of people of color on screen is going to, is going to be related to crime thrillers or drugs, or, you know, if, if, um, someone's always downtrodden uh, someone someone goes into the an actor goes into the audition week after week and is constantly offered the same role of like a downtrodden person or a prostitute or uh, whatever like then the group that they um are hoping to represent is is always going to be stuck in that corner yeah. no matter how earnestly the filmmakers that they're auditioning for might want to say something real or meaningful about yeah. that oppression that mm-hmm. they're depicting right so you can overcompensate either way i think i think if we have too much of the kind of blind positivity then we ignore real problems and we just create um uh, a palatable um minority representation that that is um comfortable for uh the 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 audience oppressor <laughs> for yeah, the audience yeah, who yeah. you know we'll take your example of like if you just if you just if you just have Sidney Poitier movies and that's the only black representation that we have then that caters to the white gaze mm-hmm. in in a way that you know it caters to white audiences and their ex- expectations of what blackness looks like or should look like mm-hmm. what black masculinity looks like what black honor looks like and Sidney Poitier is great I have no no qualms with um the value of what Sidney Poitier does as an artist um 
black representation has to be more than Cindy Poitier. Asian yeah. representation has to be more than Bruce Lee. And as you can see in the video, I have a poster of Bruce Lee in my room. I clearly think that what he does and what he represents is important, but you know, Asian representation on screen has to be more nuanced than that. Yeah. And then the, uh, the other side of that coin is that it can't all just be in the muck of uh, here's how this group and, has been mm-hmm. oppressed. And, and then you just make movie after movie about, um, about the status quo, which then uh, no matter how well-intentioned that may be, the audience inevitably maintains begins that. to accept that mm-hmm. and, and maintain that status quo of like, well, that's, I guess that's just how those people are. Yeah. And, you know, like no one says that out loud, but I think that's, that's what's underlined by an overabundance of that kind of overcorrection. Yeah. So. And I, I, I think it's, it's, it's really like what you're saying where either way it's flatlining, it's, it's flattening, yeah. flattening their experience where it's really always a very three dimensional human experience that's happening. And I, I think that what that's telling me is that there just simply needs to be more representation. Needs to be more. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So it, yeah. the, especially like um, in directing those things, because then, then you're actually getting those people who are saying, this is my experience of, of this or this is a, an experience that I know of that is very palpable or that is very present or something like that. Um, and I love that because then it's not a matter of saying like, oh, representation is only sullied. It's like, no, representation just is what it is. And we need to have more of it so that we can have a more balanced view yeah. of of these people's lives so that we can um, cater to all audiences, all audiences and really cater to um, all experiences. Yeah, a a good example of that is like uh, 20, what was it, 2017 when Wonder Woman came out? Mm -hmm. That was 2017. Um, I remember a lot of the discourse around that movie asked a lot of that movie, right? People People were like wringing their hands over like, is this the best um depiction of like a female female, hero yeah the female hero what it means to be a woman what it means to be a hero what it means to be a good you know like people were just asking a lot of this movie and and i think that's an inevitable symptom of um a scarcity right like like you said uh we just need more if we had more (laughs) women heroes in action movies or in superhero movies no no matter how narrowly you want to uh define the boundaries of this query like if there was just more in that space then every time there's a new movie with a female lead we wouldn't have to ask ourselves like is this is this a womanhood <laughs> is this is this two and a half hour movie like the epitome of what what a woman is like that's too much that's too much to ask of any film um but when when any group kind of like gets a big break uh, mm-hmm. in in mainstream culture like that those same discourses always pop up it's like oh d- is does this movie really speak to the black experience does this movie really speak to the queer experience does, mm-hmm. you know and like no movie can can pass that test because every every movie is just about a small select group of mm-hmm. characters right um and so inevitably the answer is going to be like well no <laughs> <laughs> um which which I don't think is always the movie's fault. It's it's just the symptom of a of a of a scarcity we have of of we don't have enough, mm-hmm. right? Um, there are the, there are so many s- stories that could be told, so many ways uh, to interact with this world. There are so many um, different life paths that illustrate what it means to be 
uh, a woman or queer or Asian or, or black or white or whatever, like, and um, until all those different t- types of, of walk of life are, are not just represented on screen, but like um, given, distributed and mm-hmm. given attention, yeah. um, then we're always going to be repeating the same question of like, oh man, that movie was really good about such and such, but, but it didn't really speak to this other thing, you know, like crazy rich Asians comes out and everyone uh, in the Asian community that that I'm following online is like complaining about how it doesn't represent enough um, South Asian. Like it's just, it's really just about East Asian, like rich people. It's not, it's not, it's, it doesn't speak to Asian-ness broadly enough for, for people who are critical of it. And that critique I think is valid, but it's also like, an impossible bar to, like <laughs> we got to include every single Asia is a whole of fucking continent like that's a, that's a lot of experiences um to cover so and part and part of the problem is that when a movie like that comes out and hits the the mainstream the discourse around it is inevitably going to pin all those expectations on it and mm-hmm. say like oh finally like a mainstream like rom-com about asian people like let's speak to, speak about you know what this speaks to or what this represents and and inevitably it's going to fall short i think of what we hope for but yeah the solution like you said it's just more we just need mm-hmm. more awesome um, yeah i love that and uh i think i think that's a perfect way to to start closing this podcast uh, just more representation and then the final question that i do have for you mr chris way is what movie should people go watch right after this podcast right after this podcast mm-hmm. oh boy um I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat and give you a few. Let me, <laughs> let me pull up my my top hundred lists on Letterboxd. Too. I, the, the my number one favorite movie of all time, and, and the filmmaker that I uh, that I did my master's thesis on is Don Hertzfeld, and he has a film called It's Such a Beautiful Day. Ooh. Um, it's an hour long. It's it came out in 2012, but it was first released as like three separate 20 minute shorts mm-hmm. in in I think 06, 08, and 11, and then and then he kind of put them together um in 2012 so it's such a beautiful day by don hertzfeld 2012 it's an animated it's kind of like an experimental experimental animated um feature about this stick figure man named bill who is slowly losing his mind and his memory mm-hmm. and um it's really poignant it's sometimes darkly funny sometimes like shocking um but i, th- I think it's deeply moving and it, and it portrays um, I think of very profound ambivalence about uh, time and timelessness and memory and uh, a deep sadness about like um, how we, what we th- take for granted or what we think about memory and time and, and our relationship to our memories and to the people around us. And uh, I think it's really good. And, and mm. Don Hertzfeld has a great career over the past two decades of, of weird little experimental um, animated shorts. And this is his only feature, at least so far. More recently, he's done some science fiction shorts that are really, really interesting too. Um, but it's such a beautiful day. I think I'm always eager for an excuse to plug that <laughs> and to tell people to watch. I think it's I think it's my favorite film of all time and it probably will stay in that spot for the foreseeable future. Um, that sounds like a beautiful one. Hell yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. I'm going to throw... I'm going to throw one more in there. I'm going to throw, I'm going to throw two more in there. All right. We'll, <laughs> okay. allow it. we'll allow it. <laughs> is that all right? Is yeah, that yeah. allowed? <laughs> one. Okay. 
there's this film from Abbas Kiarostami from 1987 called Where Is My Friend's House? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's translated as Where Is the Friend's Home? Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it's just this like 90 minute, very simple story about a little boy um, trying to find his friend's house because he accidentally took his friend's homework home with him and he doesn't want the friend to get in trouble mm-hmm. um, the next day when he arrives at school without his notebook and, and he knows inevitably that's th- the very strict teacher is going to um, there's going to be problems there so he wants to help his friend out he has no idea where his friend lives it's just this Iranian like village where it takes place um, and it's just a lovely heartfelt human story uh that i think everyone in the world should see oh, yeah. um Abbas is a very fascinating filmmaker he made a couple of follow-ups to that film that are increasingly meta and like self-reflexive but mm. that first one i think is the masterpiece it's it's just such a um a minimalistic um but like emotionally profound. potent mm. uh profound little little uh little story um and then one my my one more uh, <laughs> is this has a very similar title to the to the the first one I mentioned, but there's a film called Life in a Day. There's actually two of these, and I haven't seen the newer one, which came out I think during the pandemic. But mm-hmm. the original one, Life in a Day from 2011, 2010, 2011, um, is this kind of crowdsourced documentary. I think it's really beautiful, and I think it gets to the heart of some stuff that we've been talking about today Mm -hmm. about like film as empathy building um resisting narrative structure resisting individualistic ideologies um i think this film does some of that that we want uh, or for me at least because what this film is it's it's just uh they reached out on youtube the filmmakers um said everyone send us footage of your life on this one particular day i think it was like july something mm-hmm. uh 2010 and they got hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage of of people sending in here's what my life is like right goat herders in the middle of nowhere uh people who are suffering from uh you know chronic illness people who were homeless people who had ferraris people who were um deeply conservative deeply liberal uh apolitical everything in between people with you know just making food people you know like all walks of life all throughout the world. Oh yeah. People just took footage of what their day to day is like people biking around country to country, people dealing with death, people uh, getting married, you know, whatever. Um, And the filmmakers took all that footage and, and compiled it into this edited 90 minute montage, basically of a day in the life of, you know, a handful of these people. Wow. Um, so it starts in the morning with sunrise and you get this montage of like people waking up or whatever. And it goes through the day kind of chronologically. Um, and I think it's, that used to be my number one um, film and it's still very high up there. I think it's just a really poignant expression of this kind of collectivist urge that I have where I, mm-hmm. I wish that films would embrace more often of just this uh, rejection of like a, of a hero's journey, individualistic, like it's all about like the, the one person saving the world or the mm-hmm. one person going through this damnation arc or redemption arc or whatever kind of arc. And instead this film embraces just the minutia and variety of all these different lives um, oh. that aren't even really connected other than that they happen to be existing on the same planet on yeah. the same day. 
Um, that sounds like so that 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 film is yeah i think i think there's something really spiritually valuable in that and it's available on on youtube i think for free um life in a day 2010 2011 there is a follow-up to it from a decade later but i i haven't seen that um but i find that i find that film really moving i there's obvious like critiques and and like um limitations in the sense that like it's not it's obviously not going to be comprehensive this is edited (laughs) you know these these are choices that these filmmakers made of like mm-hmm. what they found most compelling. But I still think that the end result is like uh, really potentially radical and liberatory and, and um, moving. So that's my third re- awesome. recommendation. Those are, those <laughs> sound like amazing movies. I will definitely watch every single one of them. Um, awesome. And Chris, thank you so much for coming onto this podcast. This was a wonderful conversation and uh, I'd love to have more sometime if you're up for it. Absolutely. Perfect. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks so much, man. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Kindness Rebellion. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. I know I did. It was an awesome conversation with Chris. Make sure to check out those movies he suggested. Um, Just once again, they are It's Such a Beautiful Day by Don Hertzfeld, Where Is My Friend's House by uh, Abbas Kiarostami, good luck spelling that one, and Life in a Day, which is a collection of different directors. Um, These are really unique films that are, I would say, a lot more spiritual in the sense that they're just getting a more honest look at um, at human life, and uh, and I think it's a beautiful perspective to have, so make sure to check them out, and uh, comment on this YouTube video or any of the other platforms that you're listening on uh, to kind of engage with us and tell us what you think about the movies, because uh, they're really valuable. Uh, thank you so much. Make sure to like, share, and subscribe. Share this everywhere. Please communicate with me. Talk, and like, Let's get this conversation rolling. Let's make real change and let's have a new interaction with our environment and our media. Thanks so much for listening.